0: Love protects love relief, love is persevere.
1: Good morning, everybody, or I guess good evening, isn't it? You get, It's such a habit of saying good morning all the time. You get up here, you don't even know how to say good evening. Well, uh, before we get started today, I just want to say welcome uh, to the Association for Reformed Theology. And uh, I have a few announcements to make on behalf of Lakeside. One of those is that if you are not a member and are interested, we are going to begin our Lakeside 101 class. Uh, that's going to be the first Sunday in October. It's going to be four straight weeks at 5 o'clock in the evening here in the church. Uh, we're going to be in our fellowship center, which is the building right beside us here in front, where the kind of where the uh, park benches are over there, that's really nice. And uh, we'll be in there for about an hour every Sunday night for four straight weeks, beginning the first week in October. And that's the class that you go through to learn more about joining Lakeside. And after that, you would meet with our elders, give a profession of faith, and then you would be a member at Lakeside. Also I know uh, it, many of you know about our Birdies for Belize golf tournament that's coming up. I want to encourage anyone who can to play in that and anyone who can to sponsor a hole in that because it's all passing through the the accounts at Lakeside and going straight to the people of Belize who are affected uh, by the lack of tourism, the lack of money coming into the country and a lot of hunger and a lot of starvation right now in that country, and so we're trying to get money there as soon as we can to, to many of our good friends who support those that are hungry. Um, I'm excited about tonight. I, I know many of you who have read, uh, start off with the, the first three chapters with us and, and have now kind of moved on and, and read, what did we read this week, six, seven, and eight, uh, have, have have said to me, hey, it's the reading was a lot easier this week that was the last time that somehow the language kind of opened up and it free it freed a little bit and I was able to not stop and have to reread as many lines enough. Uh, as many times to try to get into my brain. I agree with you. And Weston and I were very upset when we divvied up the chapters because what we noticed is, and I just, we just said in the, in the staff meeting, you take this one, you take this one, you just take this one. We didn't look at them. And we ended up giving Jim one that was nine pages long. And mine and Weston's are both like 23 pages long. So it was much easier on Jim. So I have really high expectations on you today. I'm sure you can, you have that gifting. Um, God is good. Let's uh, let's say a word of prayer, and then I look forward to, to just talking through Bob Inc.'s work today. Um, Father, we do come to you today. Uh, as we study Bob Inc., we really want to study Reformed theology, and as we study Reformed theology, we really want to study your word. And when we study your word, what we really want to know is who you are and how to be obedient uh, to you. Uh, so God, uh, may uh, the the quality of your character shines through today as we study this. God, may we understand your scripture better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I think we're going to begin by having Weston come forward and teach on chapter 6.
2: I thought about having just like 40 pieces of paper I carry up and slap on the desk um, before we got going here. Uh, those of you who are watching the live stream, bear with us. We're, we're working with a, a new, some new software and, and a new computer and um, trying to make things better. So, <clears throat> so on, the, on the heels of, of last week, it, which we discussed man's highest good, we talked about general revelation, and we talked about special revelation, uh, I, I thought it would be kind of appropriate to, to open with a psalm that addresses both of these things. Um, and this is Psalm 19. I'll have it up on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. And Psalm 19 very clearly articulates the distinction between general revelation and special revelation. Um, and it's, a good, it's a good intro into the content of special revelations. Revelation. So think about, as we read verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19, think about general revelation as we read this. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose vo- nor their words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving the chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. It's rising. Is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. As we move into verse seven, be thinking about special revelation on verses seven through eleven. Says the law of the Lord is perfect, uh, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, In keeping them there is a great reward. In the last few verses here, this is the sum of the total of these verses. It says, Who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin, Let them not have dominion over me. Let the words of, oh, sorry. Uh, Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Psalm 19 is fantastic because it starts off with this general revelation, and then about halfway through it moves to special revelation, the word of the Lord, and then it kind of puts it all together and says, here's why this is valuable to us. Uh, And so as we begin talking about, the content of special revelation, which uh, my task is kind of summarize this chapter. Um, it was different than I expected. Uh, you know, when I read the title, I thought this is going to be really easy. It's going to say the Bible, and then it's going to move on to, some, <laughs> to confession or something like that. This is going to be a really simple chapter for me. Um, and, and it wasn't exactly what I expected because Bobink is trying to make a point as to um, how to kind of summarize what we have in the Bible. And so for Bobink. Um, His special revelation begins immediately after the fall, right? So we have Genesis 3.15, which we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, for Bobbink's special revelation is all about promise. Uh, And this is where we find this this really cool seminary phrase we like to use. It's called the proto-evangelium, right? It's, It's just this word that means the first gospel. And so what you see in Genesis 3.15, man has sinned, and God comes down, and God says, there's going to be this seed, and he's going to crush Satan. Now, he's going to be bruised, but he's going to crush the serpent. Um, and, and this is the promise. And for Bobink, everything in special revelation hinges on this promise that's going to be fulfilled. Um, and so there are some who might disagree with Ink a little bit on this, because you, you could kind of make the argument that, the way you define special revelation kind of dictates where you believe it starts. Uh, So if you believe that in the Garden of Eden, in the Word of God, when he says, Adam, you can eat from any tree, but don't eat from the tree in the middle, most theologians would say that's where special revelation begins, right? Because Adam wouldn't know not to eat from the tree if it wasn't for God saying, don't eat from that tree. There's something special about what's being happened that you wouldn't just generally know. But for Bobbing, because he, he looks at the Bible, the contents of Scripture, as being the fulfillment of the promise then it starts with the promise, and the promise starts in Genesis three fifteen, 15. Um, and so for Bavink, everything goes back to that. And, and from this point, Bavink, he, he sets down, it's about the promise, and then he, he begins to move forward and talk about what that promise is. And if you caught it, it's a familiar verse. The promise is, I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise of proto That's the process of the first gospel. That's the promise of the content of scriptures is, "I will be your God, and you will be my people." And everything in Scripture is essentially unrolling and unveiling that promise and how it works out. Um, and so what begins to happen is we go, "Great, we have this promise, we understand this promise that, that He's our God, we're His people. There's going to be a fulfillment of this promise from, from th- Genesis 3:15. And then we have this weird thing called the law. right? And if you remember, like it's really nice, we really like to say, The promise is so great. And this is what tends to happen with, um, you know, Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace, right? It was this idea of, well, it doesn't really matter what I do because I have this God who has a promise and he loves me. And so he's going to forgive me, right? And so you kind kind of run with this idea that the grace we've been given really doesn't cost us very much. It's kind of cheap grace. And um, Bobbing's trying to kind of argue against that. He's saying, no, 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 there is a promise, but there's also this law that comes in. But it's important that we understand the order of the promise and the law. Otherwise, we completely miss the point of the content of Scripture. So, so why do we have law? And, and this is how Bavinck teases it out. He said, you know how you had grace? Remember how Abraham was off by himself, living his pagan life, knowing nothing about God? What does God first do? He reveals himself to Abraham. He calls him. Right? And then he begins to give Abraham these kind of stipulations. Right? So we have the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. And then in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And if you remember the covenant, God doesn't walk through and then make Abraham walk through. What happens? God walks through for God and God walks through for Abraham. So once again, we have, we have grace in this process. So there's grace for the call. There's grace for the covenant. And then we get to Genesis 17, and that's where we see circumcision come up. It's so like the, the first real action that, that Abraham has to do by faith that kind of marks this promise is this, this circumcision. Um, and so what you see, you see this with Abraham, you see it with Israel, you see it with the judge, you see it with Adam all the way back, on and on and on. There is God doing something great, God revealing himself, him calling his people. And then he says, now that you are mine, this is what I expect from you. It, Once we get it backwards, we have messed up the gospel. We've missed the entire point of the content of scripture because we begin to try to earn salvation, which we can't earn. And so we're fully dependent on the grace of God. Uh, The the best, I think, example of this in the Old Testament is if you you read Deuteronomy at the end of it, uh, there's this part where God says, you're going to leave me. You're going to forsake me. You're going to worship other gods. I'm going to be angry, but I'm still going to fulfill my covenant with you. And the people go, oh, we know we're going to be terrible, but you're our God. And he does. They continue to walk the judges. You ever read those? You just wonder. We're talking about him with the youth, and you just wonder how those people could ever be so silly um, and uh, ridiculous. But they're us. So the purpose of the law in special revelation isn't to annul the promise, but to pave the way for its fulfillment. Right. So, so Bobbing says you have this law that comes in place. The only way Christ can come to fulfill all these things is if we have the law that points you to Christ, right? So you have this, you have the grace, you have the law, and the law is part of grace. It falls under that category of grace. It's not something we have to do to earn his love. And once we realize that, we begin to see that the law of God is religious, and Ink highlights these. He says they're religious, it's moral, it's holy, and it's liberating. And he kind of spent some time working through that liberating part, right? because ultimately um, the law leads to the fulfillment of the promise, which is eternal liberation from sin. And so by God giving law under grace, he's actually giving his people what leads to freedom. like he's giving them this uh, this, this gate, this kind of fence in there he says, "This is where your freedom lies." and you know if you, you there's been some studies done where you have some of these prisons that are uh, out. And they don't have these fences, right? The people can kind of come out in the, kind of the wilderness, and people can go out and go as far as they want, essentially, because they're never going to make it anywhere. And everyone stays huddled up by the, by the building, right? Because they don't really know how far they can go. They don't really know where the boundaries are. Um, and then they'll come in, and they put these big fences all the way around, and the people, poof, all the way to the edge of the fence. Why? Because there's some freedom in knowing where you're allowed to go. And so God's law comes. He says, I've given you grace, but now the law gives you freedom. Worship me, obey me, and be free in doing that. So all this comes to fruition in the person of Christ. The entire Old Testament points toward the promise hoped for. And the New Testament points back to the promise fulfilled. And and both of these junctures, they happen at in the person of Christ. And So we have in this Old Testament versus New Testament is we have promise in the old, fulfillment in the new. We have shadow in the old and body in the new. We have image in the old, reality in the new, shaken things in the old, unshaken things in the new, bondage in the old, and freedom in the new. These are the the kind of distinctions we have and should be so grateful for. So if the content of special revelation is the promise of God, then what does it do for us who live 2,000 years after the fulfillment of this promise? And ultimately, it's grace. It's the grace that God has given us to know him in a way that leads to life. It's the new covenant which we're able to be included in um, through the work of Christ. So the content of special revelation is simply this. I will be your God. You will be my people. And it's written down so we know how that works, how to do that, how to to worship our God, um, and what his people do. That's what the content of special revelation. And Tyson is going to work more about Scripture and how that fleshes out.
1: So, uh, 10 minutes to teach the whole of Scripture, as I understand it. I gave you, a you gave me a 11. Am I on there? Okay, let me find my spot here. All right, we're talking through chapter 7. Uh, Bavik, he's going to start uh, this chapter by suggesting that there is a difference between what we've been talking about as revelation. And Scripture, and I think this will make sense to you. Uh, What it'll say is that revelation always happens before Scripture. Think about the prophets who received the revelation of God. Um, Those prophets spoke that revelation to the people, but it was only later, after they spoke these things to the people, that the revelation was written down and recorded as Scripture, so the revelation always happens before the Scripture. Bavik then notes that, therefore, Scripture is not revelation itself, but rather the description and the record of revelation. Now, in saying that, we kind of create a danger. We have to be real careful. When we say Scripture is only the record of the revelation, there's a chance for another error. Because there are those who will suggest that uh, that God was, while he was active in a special way in giving his original revelation— but that when the recording of that revelation of Scripture was happening, it was, it was kind of left up to the person who was writing it. And according to this view, while the revelation might have been perfect, the person who was recording the revelation into Scripture was susceptible to, to making mistakes or, or errors. Uh, and that would be an error to think that. If we started believing things like this, then when we read the Bible, what we would have to do is uh, is we'd be forced to decide what is God's special revelation and on the other side what isn't God's special revelation like what you'd read the Bible you say what is the word of God and what isn't which it would lead liberals to kind of make this distinction between God's word and scripture and instead of saying something like um instead of saying scripture is the word of God what they would start saying is that the word of God is contained in Scripture. You see the difference? If you say Scripture is the Word of God, you're talking about all of it. It's all the revelation of God. If you're saying the Word of God is uh, contained in Scripture, what you're saying is that somewhere in Scripture you can find pieces of the Word of God. And it's a slight difference. You might not catch it, but it's important. Is Scripture the very Word of God? Or is the Word of God somehow only contained in Scripture if you say it's, it's merely contained in Scripture, what you're really saying is that not all Scripture is the Word of God. At the top of page 84, Bavik introduces us to this idea of God's inspiration. He begins, he kind of begins our next section there. Inspiration is the word we use to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in those who wrote Scripture. He notes that all believers... Uh, in the world, all Christians, experience the Holy Spirit's work in us. We all do. Like all of us have the Holy Spirit's work in us if we're Christians. But that's not identical to the inspiration that came to the prophets. The the, the inspiration that came to the prophets, he's going to say, is distinct. And then what he's going to say is it's important to discern the difference between the work of the Spirit, which happens in the church and in the world, and uniquely the work of the Spirit that happened in the apostles' and the prophets." Now who are the ones that wrote the scriptures? The apostles and the prophets. Uh, And and the way that that Bob Inc. is going to do this, he does this by comparing two verses. He's going to compare Romans 8.14 and 2 Peter 1.21. So let's start with that 8.14 verse. This is what he says, "...for all who are led by the Spirit uh, of God are sons of God." So any of us, this is just kind of the church uh, universal, all of us who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. The key word would be led. Led would be what you need to focus on there in the Scripture, or at least what Bovink does. Uh, So all Christians, we would say, are led by the Spirit. Now let's look at 2 Peter 1.21. And it's going to describe, as Bovink says, the Spirit's relationship with the apostle and the prophets. It, It reads this. Uh, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. The distinction that Bavik would make is this idea that in all of us we are led by the Spirit, but uniquely when the prophets and the apostles wrote, they were being carried along by uh, the Spirit of God, or as some translations say, they are moved by the uh, by the Spirit of God. And the way that the Bible says this is that is that God spoke through the mouths of the prophets. That's, it, it's really, really clear that God spoke through the mouths of the prophets. The point is that God really is the speaker of his words. However, although the uh, the, the prophets were moved by the Spirit, they themselves actually spoke also. It wasn't just that they were unconscious and went into some trance. And they, they themselves were not merely passive agents. They were self-conscious of their own activity and, uh, and their intellect and, and their imagination and all that was not suppressed. They recall, they reflect on this revelation that God has given to them by his spirit as he uh, moved and carried them along. Bobink then moves to kind of another section where he begins to talk about how the Bible came into being. Bobink says that there was not—and the word he uses is kind of an interesting word—inscripturated. I don't know if that's a real word or not, but he uses it. He says that, that, that there was not inscripturated Word of God prior to Moses. And we know what the scripture is, and we can just kind of deduce what inscripturated might mean. Uh, That prior to Moses, there was an inscripturated word of God. Now, he leaves the possibility that there there was some written account of God and what God had done before Moses. We don't have a record of it. We know that people had a written language before Moses. But most of us agree that before Moses, there was not written scripture. The way the revelation of God was passed down prior to being written, most of you know this, was that it was spoken, mainly in the family unit, uh, family in a sense of respect for the past. It really all held value, and therefore the spoken record of God's revelation was sufficient. Like It was enough just to speak it within the family, and it was enough for the, the preservation as well as the extension of the Word of God. However, Bovink says that as people begin to spread out, and, and he says as they fell into idolatry, the oral tradition was no longer enough. And it was Moses who began the, the written record of the Word of God. It's possible that there were some things written before Mo- Moses. It's possible that Moses had some oral and written sources. But it's Moses who is credited with writing the first five books of the Bible, which are known to us as the law of Moses. This is the, the first biblical category of writing, the Pentateuch, the law. Later we see, uh, as Boving points out, uh, three other types of biblical literature added to the Old Testament. We see the Psalms, we see the prophecy, and we see the wisdom literature. Uh, according to the Bo- uh, to Boving, the, the biblical books of the prophets are broken into two great categories that I, I would have thought you know, you'd break them into. This was really good for me to walk through this. He calls those the, the earlier prophets and the latter prophets. You know I, I was kind of thinking we would see major and minor. You know? I think that's what most Christians are familiar with. But he talks about the earlier prophets and the latter prophets. And when he talks about the earlier prophets, he includes book the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And of course, most of us probably thought of those books as as historical books and not books of the prophet. But the pages of, of history in those books tell about prophets. In other words, there were more prophets in Israel than just those who have written books in the Bible. In the historical writings of the Bible, we hear about many other prophets. Prophets we read about in these historical books are generally referred to as prophets of deeds. Whereas the ones who have books written after them, they wrote books, they're usually called prophets of words. Uh, But make no mistake, whatever nickname we give to these two groups, all the biblical prophets are prophets of the word of God, okay? Even if we call one prophets of deeds and the other one prophets of words. There are some thematic differences between the earlier and the latter prophets. First, the early prophets seem to be more focused on Israel, whereas the latter prophets got involved in foreign policy. The early prophets are concerned with the present, whereas the latter pro- prophets no longer looked for the fulfillment of God's promise in the present, but rather instead looked for the f- fulfillment of God's promise in a messianic future. Bavic summarizes the word of the prophets by saying on page 91, if you look there, in the middle of the first paragraph, I think we have that quote, "...and all of them, all the prophets, each according to his own nature, In his own time and in his own way, preach what in essence is the same word of God. They proclaim Israel's sins and God's punishment for sins. And they comfort the people of the Lord with the immutability of his covenant. Remember, when we talk about the characteristics of God, we often talk about his immutability. And for those of you who don't know that word, it means it cannot be changed yeah, the, the prophets would, would speak about the immutability of God's covenant. They are solid. Uh, the word they preach goes far beyond the time in which it's spoken. So, first we have the law, then the prophets, and then we run into Psalms. Uh, the Psalms kind of run parallel to the prophets, which was our second category. The Psalms are the songs of the Word of God. And these ancient songs that we're saying uh, were loved and found in Israel's history. We find them all throughout the Bible. You start finding songs everywhere recorded. In in Genesis 4, you find the song of the sword. There's the song of the well in Numbers 21. They sang a song as they passed through uh, the Red Sea. The song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 and on and on. Even the writing of the prophets, as we're comparing these two, the prophets even had songs in their writings. Uh, The prophet Isaiah has a song of the vineyard. Habakkuk has songs of praise. The songs of the prophets are closely related to the Psalms. And the prophets and the Psalms, they really have a lot in common. They're both inspired by the Holy Spirit. They both talk about nature and history. They both look at their relationship to the Word of God. They both proclaim the kingdom of the Messiah. They, be, they both make use of poetry. The psalmist is a poet who leads us into the mysteries of the will of God. Uh, what, in, what is common in all psalms, if we think about it, is, is that all psalms are not just songs, but but Prayers. Prayers uh, from the heart of the author and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Some are prayers of praise, others prayers of thanksgiving, but all are prayers. And and the the Psalms really have become a prayer book for the church of all ages. So we have the law, we have the prophets, we have the Psalms, and we add to that the wisdom literature, uh, the pragmatic, the practical Proverbs. Wisdom literature gets its character first from, from Solomon and then from others who wrote Proverbs. And and when we, we talk about the wisdom literature, we're also including Job, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon's of Solomon. Excuse me. When it deals with prophecy, we see the will of God as it relates to Israel and the nations. When it comes to Psalms, we see the spiritual life of the saints in the Psalms. And when it comes to Proverbs and wisdom literature, we have described... For us in those verses, the practical life and conduct according to God's will. At the top of page 49, uh, Bavink talks about the, the role of the prophets, the Psalms, and the wisdom literature. And I, I really think this is a, a very uh, beautiful way to put it. He says, at the top of page 94, I think we've got that up there as well, says, The revelation, the law, the will of God, principally set forth in the books of Moses completes itself in the days of the Old Testament in the preaching of the prophet, the song of the singer, and the the maxims of the sage. The prophet is the head, the singer is the heart, and the sage, talking there about uh, the wisdom literature, is the hand. In in the Word of God, we, we have those things that speak to our hearts we have those things that speak to our heads, and we have those things that are very practical that speak to our hands, like the wisdom literature. So you add to the wisdom, uh, you add to the law, the prophets, the psalms, and the wisdom literature. Next, the gospels of Jesus Christ. They have the first place in the New Testament. They're placed first because all the later apostolic efforts reflect back on the gospels. But there is only one gospel. It's exhibited in. In four different ways, by, by four different people. In the four Gospels, the one Gospel is being described from four different sides. Matthew telling you the Gospel. Mark telling you the Gospel. Luke and John. When we talk about these, we usually talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke as being very similar. We usually call them the synoptic Gospels. They, they kind of have the same stories. They carry the same time. And, and John was written later. And it was written in a world plagued by Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was denying, part of what it was doing was denying the incarnation of the Word. We talk about that uh, in John. He begins to really write to to not just talk about Jesus and and, and the inspiration from the Spirit there, but also to deal with this idea that he he is really clear on uh, the full image of Christ as the Word become flesh. All other writings in the New Testament were similarly similarly inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm having to jump around a bit because it's hard to talk about all the Bible in ten minutes, but let me conclude by making a, a few statements. Uh, first, each book in the Bible, although written over the centuries, is now collected into the Bible. How did these collections of different writings become the Bible? Bavinck would suggest that we should not suppose that the church made this canon. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but canon is the term used to describe the books included in the Bible, those that would be what we would say holy scripture. uh suggests that these writings didn't become scripture when they were included in some collection together. Rather, these writings were authoritative the very moment they were composed. They didn't get their authority from the church. They didn't get their authority from from men, but rather from God who watches over His Word and He brings about the acknowledgement of it. There was a time in history, uh, this time when there was a number of, we say the authors are the prophets and the apostles, there were these numbers of prophetic and apostolic books that were increasing. And, And there were these other books that were kind of mixing in with them who were coming up beside them and claiming to kind of have authority but they weren't written by the apostles or the prophets, yet some people were wanting to treat those books as the word of God also. It then became necessary for the church to distinguish true canonical books from the false. The second thing I want to say is, uh, as it relates to the original manuscripts of the prophets and the apostles, uh, without exception, they are lost to us. We only have copies of them copies that Bavinck says date back to the 9th and 10th century for the Old Testament and to the 4th and 5th century for the New Testament records. And I think what's interesting is to think about the progress made since Bavinck wrote this because uh, that is not the case now. We've discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and other, uh, other uh, codexes and, 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 and papyrus and different pieces of, of the, the scriptures over the years. We, when we uncover the Dead Sea Scrolls, we recognize that they date back towards the 3rd century B.C., and the second century, all the way from the third century BC to the second century AD. So, so a big span of time that goes way back to where Bovink was dating these things. Uh, I think it's important to say that some changes have been made to the original manuscripts as they were written. Here's the changes that have been made vowels were added to the original Hebrew manuscripts, so as they were originally written uh, in the Hebrew, uh, there weren't vowels. Uh, the Masoretic uh, had to come back and so the punctuations and, and the vowels punctuations were added. Verses and chapters had been added. Uh, third, I just want to say this, the original text was written in, in, in Hebrew and Greek. Translation became necessary uh, to make so over the years so that everyone could have access to the, the Word of God. As early as the third century, they translated the Old Testament into Greek. And in conclusion, I'll just say this, I think this is really neat. In Bovink's time, he notes that the Bible had been translated, in this book he says, it's been translated into 400 languages. Uh, a quick uh, Wikipedia check, you know, if you wanna look at that, a quick Wikipedia check suggests that uh, as of 2019, the Bible in its entirety had been translated into 698 languages, which is 298 more, uh, you know, almost 300 more than, than what has happened in Bobbing's time. And it says that the New Testament has been translated into 1,548 languages, which is, I think, a really cool thing. I think it's amazing. Uh, and that concludes a kind of a summary of Bobbink's seventh chapter on the Word of God. I'll turn it over now uh, to Reverend Blaha to go through, I guess, the eighth chapter.
3: Amen. Um, Bob makes the point. Um, mine is uh, the chapter I'm doing is a chapter on the Word of God and the creeds, the confessions, and sort of the the, the relationship between our, our creeds and confessions to the Word of God. And and his point is, and and I haven't heard anything to ever change that. There was a pretty much a pretty clear consensus on um, what the scriptures were and the authority of them. Pretty much for the first uh, thousand years, of, from the time that it was sort of um, recognized um, until the time of, of the Reformation. Um, the, the, the Old Testament, as was shared, it was very easy to just take that from the Hebrews, and uh, they could see that that easily is seen. We can see that in how it's quoted and referred to in the, uh, the letters of Paul and Peter, and then, of course, the Gospels. Um, the Gospels themselves, the accounts, became, obviously, you would think, very important very early on. And even the letters um, you started to see um, were considered very important. Um, Paul's writing in Colossians chapter 4. And, and, let's see, and he writes it, uh, and he says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from them or from Laodicea. And, and so evidently his letters, and they were very, very quickly probably copied and sent out to the various um, uh, cities, Colossia and Laodicea, and a few of the cities are all very close to each other. And so very soon they, they started considering his letters um, very authoritative. In fact, uh, 2 Peter says that, um, encourages the, the church to pay close attention to the letters of Paul. He says they're really hard to understand, but they are like the Scriptures. And so very soon, the the Gospels, the letters, uh, were soon to be very authoritative and seen in in the early church. Uh, The church saw its place uh, to preserve, to explain, to preach, to apply, to translate, to spread, to defend the Word of God um, to the world. They were basically to take the thoughts of God and interpret them to the world who didn't have those thoughts. And so Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3.15, and we're just going to look at that one verse right now, the 1 15, it says, um, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress or the support of the truth. The church of the living God it is the pillar and the buttress, the support of the truth. And so it very much saw itself as taking the truth God had given to it, and it was something of a, it was to support it, it was sort of a, um, a pillar upon which it could sit, a pedestal, it was to declare it uh, to the world. But soon they understood pretty quickly through their, some great assemblies and synods and some of these kind of things, the church needed to set forth its convictions concerning truth and God, and Christ, and man, and salvation. Um, You probably have people maybe come to your door from time to time or come up to you at some point and say, we don't believe in any creed but Jesus. The only thing we want to read is you and the Bible. And when somebody comes with that, you ought to shut the door real fast and don't let them in, as as, as some of the uh, John told the church at that time, because they're going to give you all kinds of problems. Um, The confessions and the creeds of the church, um, they, they, they were not... Um, they were not there to in any way separate people from the scriptures, but rather they were to maintain the scriptures from abuse, um, from misuse, and maybe just from just independent or individual um, so caprice, kind of just uh, just not fully understanding them. And you begin to see early in the church a number of these um, you know, um confessions and early creeds, and you and I might not even recognize them unless maybe somewhere um, somebody had pointed them out to you. Very possibly the earliest creed was Jesus is Lord. Paul mentions it in 10.9. I mentioned it again. He says nobody can, can say Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit, and that's probably one of the earliest creeds. In Philippians, the famous one where Paul talks about um, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not think deity was a thing to be grasped, but rather humbled himself, became obedient obedient to the point of death on a cross, and that God then highly exalted him and then um, raised him up, gave him a name above every name that at his name every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And most of your commentaries will tell you this is probably a very early creed. Talking about them. Uh, another one we know pretty well. I'm gonna go ahead and if you got 1 Timothy 3:16. It follows the one we just talked about the church being this great um, pillar of, 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 of tr- uh, for the truth, and it says, Great indeed, Paul writes, we confess this confession, this mystery of godliness. What's the mystery of godliness? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, the incarnation and the resurrection. Um, Vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, both in his birth and his resurrection and everywhere in between. Proclaimed among the nations, declared to be the great promise, um, believed on in the world for salvation and ultimately glorified, taken up in glory. And so right there is the essence of the faith. And of course, we know a number of them. We, every Sunday, declare the Apostles' Creed. And we've talked about that before. There's the Nicene Creed, one that has been very much accepted throughout the church, and one that we're not as familiar with right now, but is one called the Athanasius Creed. And they all are talking about Christ, because in those first four centuries, that was the battle. Who is Christ? And the battle really wasn't from those outside the church trying to come in, but it was things going on inside the church. And in various times throughout the history of the church, um, you've had to kind of come back, and you certainly did the Reformation as to having, the creed, having a creed that speaks of um, um, who, what, who, who is Christ and what did He do. He then spent some time talking to Rome about the Roman Catholic Church, and he, and he gave. He said, "There's some real achievements of the church." During that time, from the first, when, when um, the first creeds were sort of developed, and then and some of the early councils, and then the time of the Reformation, um, you know, it, it, it took on paganism, and it overcame it through much of Europe. It converted, seen, saw entire nations converted, it saw civilization in Europe, um, it maintained the great truths of Christianity, it managed to stay generally independent from the, the governments that were always trying to control it. And so it did a lot of good things, but obviously there were some serious failings. And he mentions three of them. The first is that um, the church began to equate tradition, or at least another body of knowledge about Christ that's not found in the Scriptures, to be even on par with Scriptures or even above it. And um, uh, things like, we start hearing things like the mass and celibacy and canonization of saints, the Immaculate uh, Conception, the virgin birth of Mary, all of these kind of things, you're not gonna find in the scriptures, but ultimately were found in the authority of the Church, which was ultimately seen in the Pope when he spoke in a very special way. We speak of it called from the chair or ex cathedra. Um, not everything he said was um, infallible, but he could make certain doctrinal statements in, in certain forms that were considered now a new truth um, and to be believed alongside or even over and against the scriptures. And there was sort of a new standard they started using. You and I, are ta- we're used to thinking of the scriptures but they spoke of something, um, uh, go ahead and put that quote up there if you, if you can, Weston. And basically it says, uh, um, the, the kind of the standard that they would start using, that which has been believed everywhere, always, and by everybody, which meant the kind of the established church at that time. And so they would say, well, we've always kind of believed this, and so it's authoritative. Um, so uh, certainly that was a, a problem. The second was there was a confusion between the law and the gospel. Uh, the heart of the Protestant Reformation is justification by faith alone, um, um, uh, by uh, by, by, faith, by grace through faith. Um, but uh, that kind of confusion of especially the works and the things of the the, the sacraments of the church came between the gospel preaching um, and the individual soul. So there's the tradition being next to scripture. There was confusion between long and gospel and, and justification. And then there's also the unbiblical distinction between the clergy and the laity. Okay, Uh, I was talking to our uh, Naomi today, and she's 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 on the. They're looking for a new minister in their church, and it's a Baptist church. And everybody's brother, this brother, that brother. You know, whether it's ministers or whether it's you know, um, we tend in Protestant we tend to um, have sort of the same standard. We just expect a certain more of conformity to that standard for those that would be our leaders. Um, But they put a strong distinction between them. They took words like we would consider um, elder and bishop. The same. You know, if you see in the book of Acts, it says that Paul called all the elders together, and he says, God has made you bishops over or overseers over these people. And so an elder, a bishop, an overseer, and really a shepherd were all the same thing. You see that pretty clearly in scriptures. They would break that off, and the bishop was above a whole lot of others, and then there were some above him. There were archbishops and Um, patriarchs and ultimately the Pope and below him were chaplains and deacons and priests. Um, And so they kind of put this division and then they create a whole greater kind of um, demand of, of not you know, celibacy we mentioned, poverty, a special kind of obedience that those that would go into the ministry in some form um, or the holy orders would be required to fulfill. And so they kind of broke that down. The Protestant Reformation wanted to kind of restore a lot of those things, But at the real heart of what they wanted to do in the Reformation um, was to really get at the root of the problem, going back to the beginning of the creeds. It was the work of Jesus Christ, it was the word of Christ, and it was the person or the spirit of of Christ. And so that's sort of the the heart of all the great, uh, especially the great ecumenical creeds that we would all agree with. Um, He does make one point at the end. He says, um, Luther had one great question he was interested in. He wanted to know, how is a man saved? And that's kind of where he said, that's as far as Lutheranism kind of went. It was really about restoring the preaching of the word um, in its, all of its integrity, which was very important. But Zwingli, Zwingli and Calvin sort of expanded that whole question. And their great question was, how is God to have his due glory? And because of that, they started asking a whole lot of more questions. A lot more questions. If God is sovereign in salvation, He's sovereign everywhere else. Um, If He's sovereign in the church, He's sovereign in the civic life out there. If He's sovereign for your personal uh, um, private life, He's also um, sovereign in the public life. And so um, they began to very much expand the nature of the the thinking of the gospel further and further out into the world. And the the, creeds that sort of come forth out of the Reformed Church. Uh, We think of the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, the Reformed Baptists, the the London Confession of 1689, Reformed Baptists, which is basically our creed, but we we differ on a couple things, one being baptism. And then another one that the Continental Reformed Church is called, the Three Forms of Unity. But all of these began to really expand um, the lordship of Christ into um, into every area of life.
2: Alright, so uh Gavin's gonna help us out. <clears throat> um this is this is the time of our meeting. We we bring the panel up, there's a button at the bottom, hold that, it should cut it on uh for you. I put fresh batteries so there's no excuses um to not have to answer these difficult questions. You got it?
3: You in? I got Okay. I to do it Yeah, he,
2: he's in. So you hold it. Hold that little bit button And it should kick on. Uh, so we have these gavin's going to pass some of these out if you if you have questions specifically some people have emailed some in but there's cards and a pen and what it would really help us out if you had a question you write it on that card and then gavin will come get it and bring it up here and we kind of go through them um, but you can ask those at any point in time as we're discussing and talking um and uh he, he's the man today so <clears throat> he washed his hands too so uh, if you already have a question, you go ahead and go, I've already got something I'm going to need you to answer or, or give a shot at. Um, you know, he can get you a card. So, all right. So, um, one of the, the first questions um, is, uh, how do we know that these scriptures are complete? And what about things like the lost letters of Paul? Uh, you know, Paul mentions in the Corinthians, right? Just like my other my letters, he mentions a letter that we don't have. So, um, what if a Paul like that? If a letter like that were found, would we try to include that in the the scriptures in the canon? Would that be considered apostolic or authoritative? Um, so, who wants to take it? Isn't this
1: the one you had the class on this week?
2: No. Uh, well, kind of, but no. Um, I was I was going to let you guys take it. This is a good one. Um, I can I can I can talk a little bit about it. Um, so. Um, my understanding hope, hope my professors are watching this this might affect my grade um no my my understanding is this so um you you, you can you can look at a tree and see that it's green uh, but what's green isn't a tree right like the greenness doesn't define the tree right the tree is defined by something else and um and so in the canon we have kind of this method that we go through of is it apostolic is it you know is it fit theology like all these kind of things that we check um but but the real test of what makes something in the canon ultimately is was it useful for the, the normative church right like um so you have some specific things that paul might address or mentions but uh, the issue you have is, is, is it useful to the church as a whole? And so as you see a lot of these, he says, hey, take this letter, give it over here, take it this, church, this, this church over here. And so even though apostles wrote things, um, not everything they wrote was meant to be in the canon because ultimately what God meant to preserve, what he meant to be in the canon, are those things which are the, the normative use of the church. The church in general, all across the ages, all across time, all across the, the, the world, um, has everything they need to, to understand who God is and, and, and what God is. Because obviously um, apostles wrote other things, um, right? And so, so the reason it's not included, part of the argument is because God chose not to preserve it. Um, what he preserved was what the church would need. Um, and so you begin to have this thing, what if you find some missing artic- you know, letter? Um, you would probably not include it. And there's actually some things that we have in the Bible that don't really know where they go. Um, but but it was preserved through all these crazy circumstances and multiplied and sent all over that we believe that it, it's apostolic in that sense because it was, it was preserved by God and put, put in there so um, that's, that's part of it
1: and I mean I think that we could add and I think it goes without saying you know, go, going back to kind of that 7th uh, chapter where Bobic talks about um, uh, the way that the Holy Spirit worked differently among the apostles and the prophets and he uses that word kind of Carried along or moved versus just led—that we would say if it was not written by a prophet or an apostle, that it should not be in the canon for sure. Uh, it, it just, it just because, because in that, and if we said that if we said that the Holy Spirit worked the same way in people who weren't prophets and apostles, then what's to keep you, Weston, from saying the Spirit's mm-hmm. working in me? I've written First Weston. Uh, I, I, first Blaha. First, first Blaha 316.
2: You know, uh, so. That's right. It's a good book. You should read it. Second. That's right. Second Blaha.
3: You know, by the way, if you want, there is actually a, book, a letter to the Laodiceans you can find out there. And it was probably written in the 3rd or 4th century. You can imagine somebody along the line um, decided, well, there needs to be a letter like this. And this is what the professor told me. It's true. You could read it. Just Google it. You could read it, and you can also say, see, that probably wasn't really uh, Paul. If you look at it, it looks like it's just a rehash of a bunch of other things. Somebody had just taken a bunch of things he wrote to the Colossians, the Ephesians, and then rehashed them there and just put them there. Nothing nothing new and yet complementary to the gospel. It's just, you know, and they have ways of looking at these things. Nobody even remotely thinks they found the letter from the Laodiceans. This was some character in the third or fourth century who wrote this and then sent it out there. Um, and... No the church has never recognized it or anything, but you know it's out there, and, um, and you know we have a different uh, canon than the Catholic Church has
0: right yeah they
3: they, they, they they've added those uh right, right. Apocryphal. Th- th- those old testament yeah yeah, yeah. and they, they actually, yeah um, now we do they you know ironically they were never um there's like i think there you are know, like fourteen books that take place the history of them, like Maccabees and that kind of stuff between the end of the old and the new testaments um they were, you even know, Calvin and Lutheran, those guys said, that, that's good stuff, read it. I mean, I mean, Maccabees is considered really good history. 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 gives you a lot yeah. of good, and it gives you a lot of insight to what some of the things were going on in the gospel times. But um, it wasn't until they came out, the Protestants came out and said, but these are not scripture, and they have no authority, that 100 years later, the Catholics then said, well, let's just stick them in and call them scripture. But they weren't even called scripture by any by any um, council mm-hmm. until Trent mm-hmm. um, was, um, which is way later. Yeah. And, and, um, and one of the things that kind of came in my section, but it didn't, um, and it, it kind of gets you to say, well, what were the apostolic books? There were about half a dozen of the books that we consider today that took a couple hundred years to work the way through that everybody accepted. You know, Second Peter, Second and Third John, Hebrews. Um, you might be able to guess why, why people wondered if Hebrews should be in the scripture. Yeah. Yeah, anybody, anybody want to throw out an answer on that one? Yeah, who wrote it? Mm-hmm. And so that's, and, that, and, that, and because, and so that kind of, that one test that kind of gave it, in Revelation and something like that, but by the, like, third or fourth century, I think is, maybe Tyson was saying, um, they didn't, nobody got together and said, this is the canon. They're just saying, this is whatever the church now accepts and understands, and, and uh, has been the canon. And it's basically the books we have right now, between some New Testament books and Old Testament and Old Testament.
2: Yeah, I don't, I can't remember if you, catch me later, I can probably remember, but there was some document that <clears throat> the Catholic Church used for like 700 years that they found out like a thousand years later that it was, it was not real. <laughs> um, and they used it as their basis for a, a major theological arguments and, and quite a few things. So um, there's always that danger too. Um, all right, so this goes kind of a little bit in hand with this. So we'll go ahead and do this one too. Um, since we're discussing scriptures and their absolute authority, uh, can we address the seeming inconsistencies in our current translations and the varying manuscript evidence? Uh, for example, the story of the woman caught in adultery, um, that's in the King James, but is omitted in most, or at least noted in most current translations. Huh? Ask James pulling in that one. This was actually the one that I said I, I, I felt better answering. Um, so I, I, can, I can try to shed some light on this one as well. Um, and uh, y'all can supplement. So... You know, the way the way the scribal process works. So if you if you look at errors in the text and in, in the in the original languages, um even the most um even even the people who want to discredit the Bible the, the most, they agree with how we would see the Bible, something like 94% on 94% of it as being accurate. So what you're left is a very small percent at like six percent. Um the majority of that uh can be basically if you understand how the scribal process worked you'd have a guy who was reading and you'd have men in the room who'd be writing and a lot of words sound the same and you know if if you ask a court reporter what happens they're the worst person in the world to ask what happens in a room because they're using a separate part of their brain the part that allows you just to become a machine does not compute with the part of your brain that allows you to process very well and so it begins to happen as these men are writing and they're writing right. If you mishear a word as you're writing it, um, that goes out as a miswritten word, right? So you have your scribal process, um, and there's someone who's supposed to check over those things. Then you'd have areas where people might write something in a margin because it looks like a typo, almost like that word can't be right. And so they'll kind of correct it. Well, the next guys get it because paper's limited, space is tight, and they look at it and go, that's supposed to be in there, right? And so the, the general rule of thumb is whatever the, the most complex rendering is, is probably the right one, because human nature is to take something complex and kind of smooth it over, right? And so as you look through these texts, what you tend to look for is some things that look more complicated are the ones that actually tend to go back and be the more credible sources. And so when you get issues like the woman at the well, um, you find, or the the adulterous woman, you find some texts omit it because other texts don't have it. Um, But the reality is we're talking about you have like a, the majority of texts don't have it but some of your most credible texts do have it right and so what what they do in the bible is they put a footnote or they mark it to the side and say this one we just don't know right like it's it's in there and some some others they'll tell you which ones it's in um and so they do that because they, they can figure out all the errors up to a few places in the bible i mean realistically they, they can get it narrowed down to just a few things None of them are major theological issues. None of them affect the gospel in any way. And they put it in your Bible. And so what that means is, is when you have your Bible, you have the Word of God. Like, you have the complete Word of God. They, they don't make the decision that we're just outing this. Um, and there may be a chance you don't have it there. But it, they let you know that some manuscripts have it, some manuscripts don't. Um, so. When uh, we talk about the
1: Word of God being inerrant and infallible when you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, what it says is in the original Greek and Hebrew, right? It makes that distinction there. And so I went to seminary uh, and took, uh, took Greek first. I think generally you do. took my Greek class first and uh, opened my Greek New Testament. I thought, finally, I'm going to unlock all the truths of the gospel. And the bottom quarter of the page uh, was footnotes. And these footnotes were references to different codexes different papyrus and different sources by which from the greek had been put together there wasn't just one source of greek it was this was backed up by this source and this source and this source it became to become clear to me that there were thousands of different uh codexes and sources that were used to uh i mean if you think about it, when the bible we, we said we don't have any of the original manuscripts anymore but we have a lot of different copies of the original i mean what happened is right after the Bible was written, it began to be mass-produced and sent across the edges of the world. And that, in a sense, protected it from error. Because if you duplicate some, something a, a, a million times and you send it all over the world, no one scribe has the ability to change one copy and change them all. You think about that. And so uh, when you talk about the King James and um, you know, the woman caught in adultery, uh, it appears in the King James – It doesn't appear in the ESV. Many, a lot of reason is, is that the Greek that was used in the King James isn't as old as the Greek that was used in the ESV. Remember, when we looked at Bavic, and he said, uh, we have uh, copies that date all the way back to the, what do you say, like the the 10th century for the Old Testament. And the 5th and 6th century for the New Testament, now we have much older and more reliable Greek texts. Namely, that's what was so amazing about finding the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was, like, it was like they found a version that was written really early, locked it in stone, forgot about it, came back you know, uh, 1,700 years later and said, Oh my goodness, we get to compare and see if anything's changed over 1,700 years. And so that was one of the values of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's why you might see some variance in recent translations is that we have better Greek manuscripts that are older.
2: So. Let's see. How do we use the Bible uh, evangelistically as an authority uh, with people who don't believe that it is an authority? I'm going to pass this one to our missions uh, elder <laughs> oh. over there. Um,
4: yeah, that, I saw that question earlier. That's a great question. The, uh, we live in a world in which Bible illiteracy is growing much more. Uh, a lot of people who uh, really doubt the, you know, word of God. Um, and it, it's very interesting because when you, when you look at it, you know, I think that when we're communicating to the world, um, we need to communicate that The Bible is a very dynamic book. It's nothing, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis one time you know, was familiar with all sorts of ancient literature and he said, you know, there's something that rings different about this. This does not ring like most myths. You know, and the part that you were talking about earlier, Weston, you know, just the fact that God says, I am your God and I brought you out of slavery. He doesn't say, I am the God, I am a God, uh, contemporary people probably believe that the Bible says something like I am God and here are the rules but instead it's like I am your God here's a relationship you know it starts off with a relationship and a reminder that when you were building mud bricks for the Egyptians and you were pretty much a worthless people with no power I lifted you out and you know and that's something that carries on today I mean how many of our of us it felt like at times like I'm just a worthless person. And so somehow I guess a challenge you know, to the question is we have to make the Bible more dynamic for people. I think we can't stray away from it, we can't. Well, one of the things I told Tyson earlier that I loved about his sermon is he's not, he's certainly not uh, getting away from any of the difficult parts of the Bible. You know, and I think we have to kind of be people that hold true to that.
1: What's that? Uh, I think that the heart of that question, if I can add something, was this idea of uh, how do we use the Bible for evangelism authoritatively in someone's life if they doubt its inerrancy? Hmm. Well, isn't that the heart? I mean, I, I think it's. Like, and, and, and to me, I, I don't know, it just feels like the easy answer is you can't. And, and, and you, can't, you can't use the Bible for someone who goes, as authority the bible is not going to be authority for someone if they think it has errors in it and so you can say you can go to someone who is against scripture completely thinks scripture scripture's lies and you says you can say to them uh, god says you should not have premarital sex and they'll go like who cares it's you know it, it's it's not authoritative it's 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 not inspired it's not inerrant but I, I guess the point is we have to preach the gospel and we have to trust in God who uh, sends his spirit uh, to uh, quicken hearts. And that when people have their hearts quickened by the gospel and the call of God upon them, that a, that a change happens in that person's life. And one of the evidences of the change in that person's life is they begin to believe the word of God is true. You know? And so I think we continue to preach the gospel and we continue to hold our line that the word of god is inerrant and infallible
3: yeah i think one thing is that i think what you're in the end um unbelief is not an intellectual issue it's a moral issue um and and we have to hold to that when people don't believe they'll have intellectual reasons i don't i understand this but ultimately it's a moral issue and so you preach christ um who's his own power and and then like you said it's, they're not going to believe no matter what unless the holy spirit's working within them and there are people who uh, we've all known them maybe we've been them who've all their lives heard unbelief and yet they get into a situation where they hear the gospel through a person an individual or in, the, in a certain kind of meeting or whatever and they go i believe and that's that thing that happens that's the work <laughs> of the spirit working with
2: the work with the word of god uh, in christ so in a sense you could argue the the bible is authoritative they're just rejecting it yeah because it, it is the word of god it, it's author- it, it has authority um, they're just choosing not to obey the authority um, um let's see so why do some people a couple more here um hold extra biblical traditions so strongly over the bible like in, in almost authority or above I, you, I would probably think like a roman catholic tradition or things like that why are those how they justify that maybe or...
1: i think you'd have to ask them weston <laughs> i mean uh, I, I think that they, they think that, the, you know, it, as far as the Catholics, the, the, the Pope has been given some authority to be uh, the vicar of the church and, and have authority that's equal to, and their councils equal to, the authority given in Scripture. And I think as we talked about, solo Scripture, as Reformers, we say, no, Scripture's our ultimate, final authority, you know, and, and I think other people try to try to take other authorities and put them on par with Scripture. Uh, I, I don't understand the full justification that they use sometimes, though.
2: Yeah, you know, I think of—I think part of our nature, our sinful nature, is to try to earn our way to heaven, you know, or earn our pleasure with God. And, like, when you think of, like, Achan—was Achan with the fire, the strange fire? You know, he goes in to worship God, and God says, this is how I am to be worshipped. And he puts special incense to make the fire different colors, and God just deals with them, right? And and so there's a sense that even, I think our being in our innermost being, we, we still want to feel like we have repaid or that we've earned something or that we're, we're valued in that way. And so I think by some of these traditions we add also, it's, it allows man to kind of bring something to the table, which is the opposite of the gospel, which says you don't bring anything to the table. Um, I know that the Catholic church puts, <clears throat> their, their kind of theology behind tradition is, You can't have, there's no word without the people of God. And that kind of, they go, you know, you have the people come out of, and then the word. And you have, you know, the people, you have the, and they kind of make this argument that without a church, there is no word. So God makes a church, then he has the word, and the spirit gives the church the power to begin to kind of make decisions on that word. We would look the other way and say, there's always been the word, In the beginning was the word, right? There's always been the word, Um, and the word never asked the church what they think about it
1: right so, without the um, word there'd be no church
2: that's right um yeah. and so it's it's but once you once you flip those and it allows you to start moving tradition and things like that in a place of at least parallel on par if not above um in some ways so
3: and if you move it beyond the catholic uh, situation just people the solas are a great offense to the world when you, you know grace alone faith alone christ alone the glory of god alone um The scriptures alone as the authority, because and uh, and we find people want to add other things um, to 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 find God or whatever it is. Um, We have Romans saying there is no other name under heaven on earth, beneath the earth, by which man can be saved other than this name, and that's an offense. uh, That's a
2: moral offense um, um, until we bow the knee to that.
0: Hmm.
2: Very good. Last question for James: Uh, What's it like to be a grandparent? He became a grandparent yesterday, two days ago? Uh,
4: yesterday. Yesterday. No, yeah, it's awesome.
2: Very good. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
4: Changes everything, like everybody said it would. Like when you become a parent, you know, everybody says it'll change everything. When you become a grandparent, it changes everything.
2: I'm really excited for, in about six months, when that nursery gets four six-month-old boys dumped inside of it uh, to see what's going to happen, so that'll be fun. Uh, well, very good. Well, Tyson, I'm going to pass it off to you for our, our big so what. Right? So why does all of this matter? For us,
1: I, I, I yeah, I hadn't thought about answering that question this week, Weston. Uh, I was supposed to come up with that, wasn't I? <laughs> you were. <laughs> yeah. You got. Um, why is it important to talk about uh, what scripture is? Why is it important to talk about what inspiration is, and um, in revelation and all these things? What is it that we believe? What is at the center of our faith? You know. I think understanding Scripture is really important in its role in our life. As uh, as we said this today, it's, it, it is not revelation, but it is the recording of revelation. And it's recorded in such a way that we see the work of the Holy Spirit, and we know that it is inspired. Beyond that, we know that it is trustworthy. And I think as Jim said, he draws that distinction for the confessions for us, is they're not trying to sit in the seat of the Scriptures. They're not trying to supersede the Scriptures but rather that they are there as a, as a protection against things that would be anti-scriptural or bad readings of the scripture. And they're summaries of what we believe the scripture says. And I think these things are useful to us. Weson, do you have there the readings for next week?
2: Um, next month, excuse me. I don't know off the top of my head. I forgot to make that slide. <clears throat> we'll text it out. We'll email it out. So we'll Sorry.
1: We'll be, we'll be, same, you've got I, the readings for next month? There you go, James.
4: Always on the ball. What we do? We're doing chapters, uh, pages one eleven through one forty two, one forty three. Uh, chapter nine, the being of God, and chapter ten, the divine Trinity. So, yes, two chapters. So so that not right? so, yeah, that. be it. Should
1: be your easiest questions about the Trinity. The Trinity. We got that. Should be should yeah, be a breeze. Should be a
2: breeze. We have to bring in a pro for that one. Yeah, we may have Try to bring to a one. seminary professor.
1: Um, can I close us in prayer? Please Are there do. any announcements from the peanut gallery before we close in prayer? I don't think so. Thanks for being here, guys. Yes. Uh, continue to, to, to take care of your readings, and, and if, if, you're, if you get behind, don't worry. Just take care of the readings for the upcoming month. And then you can come and, and be a part of this, even if you don't read. I think it's probably some beneficial for you sitting here and hearing right. the recaps. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word, uh, your great revelation. There's nothing we can know about you that you don't disclose to us, that you don't uh, show us and unveil to, for us. And so we do thank you for your great revelation and uh, and the recording of it in uh, the written word of God. And we thank you that that written word is trustworthy, uh, that it is infallible and inerrant, and it does not fail us. It is for our benefit. Christ, we thank you that it points to us. We thank you that the songs that are in it teach us to sing praises to you. And the Proverbs show us how to live these practical lives. And we thank you for the confessions, which help us to even understand uh, the word of God clearer and to protect it against uh, heresy and fallacy. And God, uh, may you be honored in our readings today and in our, our, our prayers and our questions. We pray this in Jesus' name. Be with us as we go. Amen.